I don't have to tell you this. You know that the world can be a dark place. But have you ever thought about whose job it is to combat that darkness? The people who take some of the riskiest jobs, like hunting child abductors, recovering human remains, or tracking international fugitives. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and in my show Dark Arenas, you'll hear firsthand accounts from people who work in professions that deal with the deviant and defy the dangerous. Each episode of Dark Arenas is going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to investigate the most heinous crimes and most violent criminals in society. You're going to learn about the people who choose these jobs and who stay working in them despite the tolls they take. Enter the darkness of espionage, fugitive hunting, crime scene recreation, and more on Dark Arenas. Listen to Dark Arenas now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight in the bed like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws? Well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatised by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. This is Ghost to Ghost AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Networks. If you're one of the millions of listeners who've tuned into the late night radio show Coast to Coast AM over the last few decades, you'd hear respected scientists, activists, and esteemed guests from all walks of life. Then on other nights, it was a little out there. I know who the Antichrist is, and it's the Spice Girls. The Spice Girls? Yes. But on May 15th, 2004, host Art Bell gave listeners a little of both. Dr. Eugene Malab was the first to courageously and boldly express the truth behind cold fusion long before any science journalist ever dared to. Dr. Eugene Malov was a scientist and writer who'd spent 15 years fighting for a science that had been pushed to the fringes, and it was called cold fusion. Dr. Malov believed cold fusion was a revolutionary source of cheap, clean, and near infinite energy. He'd given up his cushy job at one of the most respected science universities in the world to advocate for cold fusion and had since become a recurring guest on Coast to Coast. But on this night's show, host Art Bell had some news for fans of Dr. Malov. It is indeed with great sadness that we report the passing of Gene Malov, who died, no, correction, was killed. It is considered by the police to be a homicide, and an investigation is, is underway now. At 56, Dr. Eugene Malov had been murdered. News of the death had just broken hours earlier, and police were still searching for the killer. Information was scant. 
So Art Bell turned to another longtime guest of the show and a friend of Dr. Malov's, Richard C. Hoagland. Gene was found at about 11 p.m. in Southern Connecticut in the yard of his mother's home. Bludgeoned? Bludgeoned to death. He was, he was beaten to death. Um, it's so shocking. They talk about people who will change the world. Well, Gene was changing the world. And on the eve of potentially some breakthroughs in that direction, he has been brutally murdered. To Richard Hoagland, the timing of Dr. Malov's death was curious. Hoagland said he hadn't talked to Malov in two years, but a few days before he died, they had a phone conversation about a significant advancement that could change everything. A device that could finally put cold fusion on the map as a viable source of energy. Gene personally saw it, witnessed it, and I wanted that for my Washington presentations. Hoagland said the two were planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C. to discuss this very advancement with high-up officials in the U.S. government. But there were people who didn't want the truth of cold fusion to come to light. The same people, he said, who squashed it in the first place to protect their financial stake in science and the economy. He was determined to get at the truth where this planet no longer has to suffer from the want and privation of the oil economy and the control of limited resources. And I have this awful sinking feeling that that's the reason he's no longer with us tonight. A few Neanderthals are running around out there doing despicable things in a desperate last minute attempt to keep the inevitable from happening. All right, hold on, Richard. But Art Bell was not content with beating around the bush. So he said exactly what he thought Hoagland was insinuating. If all of that is true, then that would potentially be a motive for murder. No question about it. Richard Hoagland had built an entire career spinning conspiracy theories just like this. He'd written books about the secrets of NASA and took credit for other professionals' achievements. And yes, a lot of what he's saying here about Dr. Malov's death just doesn't add up. But he wasn't the only one who thought Dr. Malov may have been murdered for his work on cold fusion. There are hundreds of people, from his close friends to even a scientist at Los Alamos National Lab. It didn't help that the murder investigation would take years to unravel. No thanks to false leads and questionable police work. But when the truth did come out, the conspiracies seemed far too tidy compared to what actually happened. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling. I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. So, so now his house is right over here, where you see the ash trees straight ahead. On a cool fall day in 2016, Detective James Curtis and I drove up to an abandoned two-story white home in the quiet town of Norwich, Connecticut. The home was right off a highway alongside a bunch of overgrown bushes. It just seemed like any other house you'd drive past on your way to Walmart. But as I stepped out of the car, standing on the cracked concrete driveway, 
felt surreal. This was Dr. Malov's childhood home. In a sense, it's where it all began for Dr. Malov. But that driveway- and That's where they startled Mr. Malov. Is also where Malov's life came to an end. He died a brutal, brutal death, man. Oh. It, was, it, was, it was almost, you know, torturous. Curtis was brought on to Dr. Malov's murder case after it had gone cold. What's it feel like for you to just to come back here? All things have been strange, really. Part of what made it so strange were the rumors that began circulating immediately after Malov died. Conspiracy theories, like the one we heard on Coast to Coast Radio. Malov was one of many scientists that were killed because of their knowledge of alternative energy sources. Because what he was going to do next was revolutionize how you and I now use energy. That's why I was there, to investigate why these conspiracy theories existed at all. What was it about free energy and Dr. Malov that could get people talking about this in the first place? So to understand this, I had to go all the way back to the beginning, 15 years before he died, where the real conspiracy began. This is episode one, Miracle or Mistake? Dr. Malov was short, with dark wavy hair, a bushy beard, and wireframe glasses. Even into adulthood, he loved science fiction and all things space travel. When I was a little girl, he had a business in the basement. He sold telescopes. This is his daughter, Kim Woodard. He loved astronomy so much. My brother's middle name is Armstrong, named after Neil Armstrong. He had built an observatory in our side yard, and that was kind of a big deal. And kids would always ask me, what, what's that thing in your yard? <laughs> My dad was so curious about the unknown and the, the possibilities, the what ifs, which definitely I think was just kind of a theme in his life, really. Let's be open-minded. Let's think about what if. To Dr. Malov, science was the holy grail. It was the answer to those what-ifs. That's why he got his education from the country's most elite scientists. He had three degrees from Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Before long, he too was one of those respected scientists who people turned to for answers. And he was proud of that. Eugene Malov is joining me now. He has a doctorate in what, sir? Air pollution control engineering. Now, does that make you an astronautical engineer? No, the uh, master's degree and bachelor's degree did that at MIT. By the late 1980s, Malov had found his way back to his alma mater, MIT, first as an aerospace engineer, but then he decided lab life was not his calling. Science writing was. So he took a job as the chief science writer for the news office. Well, sure, it uh, meant a pay cut, <laughs> but... It seemed like writing would give me a bigger platform. And honestly, I enjoyed it more. There's no better person to tell you this part of the story than Dr. Malov himself. So we brought on actor Jason Kravitz to play him. Being MIT's chief science writer was a powerful post. It required him to communicate the university's research and achievements to the biggest media outlets on the planet. By then, Dr. Malov had already published his first book, one about space that he illustrated himself on his home computer. 
and now he had this front row seat to the skyrocketing scientific advancements of his beloved alma mater. He even still wore his class ring. And to him, it was an honor and a privilege to be part of the academic establishment he was brought up in, at least for a while. Back then, I thought of myself as what you might call a conventional scientist. Until the afternoon of March 23rd, 1989, when something mystified us all. Malib was in his office at MIT when he got word that the University of Utah had an announcement about a scientific breakthrough of epic proportion. Malov sat at his desk, cluttered with papers, watching the press conference on TV unfold. News cameras and reporters crowded into the lobby of the minimalist concrete Henry Eyring Chemistry Building at the University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. At the front of the room, a group of graying men in plain suits sat uniformly beside each other in front of crimson red curtains. The two men in glasses at the left end were the stars here, Dr. Stanley Pons and Dr. Martin Fleischmann two world-class electrochemists. And according to the administrators introducing them, their research could change the world. The breakthrough they will report today comes from the work of trained minds working at an old problem from new perspectives. For the past five and a half years, they'd secretly been trying to generate energy in a way no one had done before. And not just any kind of energy, nuclear fusion. And now they come to announce their incredible results. Dr. Stanley Pons leaned into the mic. Basically, we've established a sustained nuclear fusion reaction by means which are considerably simpler uh, than conventional techniques. Well, perhaps the only thing I should add. Dr. Martin Fleischmann chimed in to show the audience just how simple their experiment was. This is... Uh, on the one hand, a scaled-up test tube, with which you might be familiar from your high school background, it does seem that there is here a possibility of realizing sustained fusion with a relatively inexpensive device. In more complicated terms, the scientists explain that inside the test tube, they use nothing more than metal rods and electrical current and essentially ocean water to produce nuclear fusion. And it is that, we believe, which is the crucial factor in achieving fusion at room temperature. Nuclear fusion in a test tube at room temperature. The simplicity seemed at odds with the type of reaction they were claiming to have produced. Here's why. Fusion is the process that powers the sun and the stars. It usually takes place at hundreds of millions of degrees. For decades, nuclear fusion physicists have been toiling away in government and university labs, working with costly equipment that can take up three football fields with the hope to harness the power of the stars as an infinite source of clean energy that could replace fossil fuels altogether. Yet, here were these world-class electrochemists saying they'd created nuclear fusion on a tabletop as simply as a high school student might talk about creating a potato battery in science class. 
<laughs> their claims seemed downright ridiculous at first glance. Dr. Malov watched from his office as intrigued as everyone else in the room. Pons and Fleischman are standing up there talking about a nuclear reaction in a jar of water with electrodes hooked up to basically a car battery. Imagine the sight. If they were right, you could generate more energy from only one cubic kilometer of ocean, the equivalent of just 5% of the water in the Great Salt Lake, than you'd get from burning all the known oil reserves on the planet. Even Pons and Fleischmann knew how wild the experiment sounded. Stan and I thought this experiment was so stupid that we financed it ourselves. <laughs> Clearly, the results were more than the scientists were expecting. But the timing was right. It had been 10 years since world governments convened to discuss the climate crisis, and they had agreed that action was urgently necessary. But solutions weren't coming fast enough. In fact, just hours after this very press conference, the world would witness the largest oil spill in U.S. waters at the time when the Exxon Valdez tanker crashed off the coast of Alaska. Cold fusion could be the answer. If the results could be reproduced and scaled up, cold fusion promised a nearly limitless supply of cheap, clean, free energy for the masses. It seemed like maybe, just maybe, we were looking at a quantum leap in technology. I mean, this could solve the political, economic, and environmental threats posed by fossil fuel. Right away, the story made headlines, which didn't happen very often in the scientific world. Scientists in Utah tonight believe they have taken a big step forward in a little test tube. They said it could lead to a usable technology for generating heat and power. The Department of Energy is spending over half a billion dollars on fusion projects, none of which currently involves the new technique. But a spokesman said today that funding for this research will start in May. So one central question had to be answered. Was cold fusion a miracle or a mistake? It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Malov wanted to hear what his colleagues at MIT thought about cold fusion. So the morning after the press conference, he hurried across campus to the Plasma Fusion Center. There, a large group was gathering in a seminar room. He took a seat among the students and professors whose eyes were fixed on a single television screen, playing news coverage of Pons and Fleischmann's announcement. Everyone sat there in silence, watching with a combination of curiosity and disbelief. MIT happened to be a leader in the world of fusion, more specifically, hot fusion, that tried to replicate those massive temperatures of the sun. After pioneering research in this field, the hot fusioneers were asked by the U.S. Department of Energy in the 70s to create their own lab, and that was the Plasma Fusion Center. 
The hot fusioneers had been trying to figure out nuclear fusion for four decades. Their huge plasma reactors required hundreds of millions of dollars to operate, to no avail. But based on these claims from these two electrochemists, it uh, looked like they may have solved the problem in a jar of water. But how? If this was really a nuclear reaction, it would have created so much radiation that Pons and Fleischmann would have looked like comic book characters growing extra arms, or more likely would have died. But MIT was clearly one of the best places to test this new experiment, and Malov was already overhearing the hot fusioneers swapping theories on how to do it. This is what scientists do. They try to verify each other's findings. It's a way of keeping science science and a way of finding out what's credible and what's not. As the uh, researchers headed for the door, a professor even shouted, don't send out your resumes yet. Dr. Malov raced back to his office to figure out how to convey MIT's response about cold fusion to the press. Since the Pons and Fleischmann announcement, his phone had been ringing off the hook from journalists wanting to know the leading fusion experts take on cold fusion. I told them what I knew. My colleagues were skeptical. After all, Pons and Fleischmann's experiment defied conventional wisdom, as far as physics is concerned. One MIT professor even said, suppose you were designing jet airplanes and then you suddenly heard on CBS News that somebody had invented an anti-gravity machine. Well, that's how we feel. And of course, we're skeptical. Even in these early days, it was already a riveting story. Dr. Maloff saw an opportunity here. He called up his literary agent and told him the Cold Fusion saga would make a good book. At the time, he was finishing up his second book, so it was easy to convince his publisher. He landed the deal with one condition. If the major science magazines reached the conclusion that Cold Fusion wasn't real, well then, the deal was off. I had no clue how it was gonna play out, but I knew one thing for sure. The story of Cold Fusion would be an important one considering the massive media coverage. Little did Dr. Malov know that he would soon find himself at the center of the story. Whatever early skepticism MIT had of Cold Fusion, it didn't seem to stop the hype around its potential. Within a week, some 200 companies had reached out to the University of Utah to talk about commercializing cold fusion technology. And these weren't just small companies. We're talking about heavyweights like General Electric and Westinghouse. The administration at the University of Utah saw major dollar signs in their future. They were even planning to ask Congress for $25 million to fund a cold fusion lab. They even told the media, well, there's a slight chance we're wrong, but if this is fusion, it'll rank up there with such things as the invention of fire. Scientists all around the world were trying to answer this crucial question. Was this fusion? And positive results were already rolling in. Russia, Italy, South Korea, Czechoslovakia, India, as well as from top scientists across the United States. Some very surprising and very good news came on April 10th. 
Uh, researchers from Texas A&M University were the first in the country to confirm Pons and Fleischmann's observations. Then, just hours later, a professor at Georgia Tech said they also had proved the cold fusion experiment. That was great news for Dr. Malov's book deal, but scientists at his own workplace weren't buying the results. I uh, was trying my best to be objective. I mean, these results were encouraging, and they were from reputable universities. But what I heard from my MIT colleagues was not encouraging at all. And of course, I assume these MIT experts, you know, knew what they were talking about. Dr. Malov understood why the hot fusioneers were skeptical, and he had total faith in the scientist who was overseeing the experiments, Dr. Ronald R. Parker. Dr. Ronald Parker had a receding hairline, wore aviator glasses, and had one eyebrow that always seemed to be skeptically raised. He was also the director of MIT's Plasma Fusion Center. He was a big man on campus and one of the most powerful fusion scientists in the world. Dr. Malov looked up to him. He'd been a fan of Dr. Parker's work, proudly introducing him to reporters at the Wall Street Journal and other outlets whenever there was a good story about hot fusion research to be done. And when it came to cold fusion, Dr. Parker was dubious. Well, first, Dr. Parker thought it was strange that he learned about this uh, seemingly world-changing scientific development from flashy newspaper headlines before it was vetted by the scientific community in a peer-reviewed journal. But like pretty much any scientist, his next thought was, well, if it's that simple, why not do it and see what they saw. Dr. Parker had given Dr. Malov all access to the experiments going on at the Plasma Fusion Center. He dropped by as often as he could to track the progress for his book. In this cavernous lab, hot fusioneers who were used to working with giant reactors that filled entire rooms several stories high had set up nests of these little cold fusion cells on lab carts. The scientists worked confidently during their first few experiments. Parker and his team thought all they had to do was simple electrolysis. You know, set up the wires, flip the switch, and count the neutrons. It turns out it wasn't quite that easy, because unusually, there was no way to know how the Utah team had done their experiment. To protect their intellectual property, the University of Utah would not allow Pons and Fleischmann to release a paper explaining their methodology right away. This was proving to be a problem. About a week into MIT's experiments, Dr. Malov walked into the lab, which felt notably different, tense even. One researcher looked at her uh, temperature chart recorder spewing out a consistently flat blue line and predicted with conviction that they'd get no positive results. Malov looked at the other scientists. Interest seemed to be waning, so he approached another researcher monitoring a test tube. With a wry smile, he said, uh, don't quote me, but it's crap. By then, the hot fusioneers had received a copy of Pons and Fleischmann's paper, but this did not change things. The general feeling was that it skimped way too much on the details and it didn't help that things were starting to fall apart outside of MIT. The early results of the two US research groups in Texas and Georgia turned out to be false positives. 
then rumors started circulating that some of the data in Pons and Fleischmann's paper was wrong. It was all great fodder for Dr. Malov's book, but the bombshell was yet to come. One night in late April 1989, Dr. Malov was at his house in Bow, New Hampshire, when his telephone rang. It was after midnight, but he answered anyway. And to his surprise... Dr. Parker was on the other end, in an absolute panic. He said he'd given an interview to the Boston Herald a few days earlier, and he'd just caught wind from other news outlets that the Herald had grossly misquoted him. He needed Malov to do damage control and fast. I listened closely as Parker described what sounded like a serious misrepresentation of his words. I was in shock. I, I respected Parker, and I thought he was probably right, that the uh, Boston Herald was indeed distorting what he said. So Dr. Parker and Dr. Malov worked into the wee hours of the night, drafting a press release together. Like Dr. Malov, Dr. Parker didn't just work at MIT, he attended MIT years before. They had dedicated their lives to this university. They were both part of the same noble community, the same Justice League and they wanted to defend the school's honor. That night, Dr. Malov didn't sleep at all, anticipating what the Boston Herald story would bring. The morning of May 1st, 1989 was one of the most frantic and terrifying that I can remember. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walked a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. On the morning of May 1st, 1989, Dr. Malov picked up the Boston Herald. The headline on the front page read, MIT bombshell knocks fusion breakthrough cold. The story said Dr. Parker had accused Pons and Fleischmann of fraud and scientific schlock. These were exactly the mischaracterizations that Dr. Parker was afraid of and possibly a defamation lawsuit. As soon as Dr. Malov got to the office, he rushed straight to the copier with his press release in hand, stabbing the buttons on the machine to run off as many copies as he could. The top page read, Urgent Media Advisory. Contact Eugene Malov. In the statement, Dr. Parker denied making those comments about Pons and Fleischmann at all. But a media advisory from MIT would simply not be enough to refute everything. Inside the news office, we all decided very quickly, with Parker's agreement, that a press conference was necessary. We had to set the record straight. Later that morning, reporters jammed into the lecture hall at the Plasma Fusion Center, 
Moments before Dr. Parker was set to speak, the reporter from the Boston Herald arrived and he brought his taped interview with Dr. Parker along. The reporter wanted to play it back for Dr. Parker. Before Dr. Maloff could join them to listen along, he saw the pair hurry off into a private room and close the door behind them. Dr. Maloff milled about the lecture hall while the two talked. When Dr. Parker returned to the press conference, Dr. Maloff assumed some peace must have been made between the two of them because Parker just delivered his speech as planned and Parker had not changed his mind about the mischaracterizations. He was unequivocal. While he may be skeptical of Pons and Fleischmann, he said the Herald got his words wrong. Let me just say uh, quite clearly for everybody that I am not, have not, and uh, I really seriously doubt whether I ever will accuse uh, Professor Pons and Fleischmann of fraud. But one thing was clear. The MIT hot fusioneers were furious that Pons and Fleischmann had asked the federal government for money before the scientific community could weigh in. This whole ordeal with Parker, the Herald, and the press conference was the first sign of how deep emotions were running, as we all tried to reckon with these mind-boggling cold fusion reports. Dr. Parker's words aside, MIT's findings would set the record straight on cold fusion. In July 1989, less than four months after Pons and Fleischmann's initial press conference, Dr. Parker and the Hot Fusioneers released a 67-page report. In it, they claimed they had found no evidence of fusion in the experiments. And just like that, the heat around cold fusion began to fade. It sounded too good to be true. But within months, the Utah miracle was labeled a mistake. But as scientists around the world attempt to recreate the experiment, fusion has turned to confusion. Well, this all led to a widespread rejection of cold fusion. Mainstream science and the media began thinking of cold fusion as a big mistake. In their minds, Pons and Fleischmann's results were due to incompetence at best, and at worst, a hoax. From there, Congress refused to provide federal funding for cold fusion research. Then the Department of Energy pulled the plug on their research, citing the MIT paper as proof that cold fusion wasn't real. And the results were also in from the major science publications as well as the mainstream press. Nature magazine with an editorial saying fond farewell to cold fusion as well as their article titled The Embarrassment of Cold Fusion. We also have the New York Times article basically throwing cold fusion into the trash bin. Needless to say, Malov's book deal was off, perhaps for the best. Even to Dr. Malov, cold fusion appeared to be a mistake, but he was still open to being convinced. I just believed that the scientific establishment was generally honest. If a uh, new claim presented itself, they would no doubt address it with justice and curiosity. But I wanted to be the first to know of any new claims. Even without the deal with this publisher, Maloff kept following all the developments with cold fusion research. He made meticulous notes of every piece of information he gathered. The surface of the palladium electrode is more complex than I would ever have imagined. He went to conferences, 
I've just completed three days of attendance at the first annual National Cold Fusion Conference. He interviewed scientists still researching the field. Halcadon storms at Los Alamos. Their tritium results are very impressive. And as he got deeper into his own investigation, he came to a conclusion. For a year now, I have been afraid of being wrong about cold fusion. However, there comes a point where the fear gets out of hand. I'm extremely impressed at the moment with presumptive evidence of a new nuclear process. And that is why I believe that cold fusion is real. All along, he thought, cold fusion had been a fascinating, complex phenomenon that had been misunderstood. Thankfully, a few reputable scientists were still doing the research and they could soon be on the brink of a game changer. And when a breakthrough reignited belief in cold fusion, Dr. Malov resolved he would be ready. By July 1990, Dr. Malov was still waiting. That's when he stumbled onto a piece of information and a phone call that made him realize he could be waiting forever. Dr. Malov had gotten a hold of the journalist at the Boston Herald who wrote the piece that had kept him up all night. More than a year had passed since Malov and Dr. Parker drafted the press release together, denying claims that Dr. Parker had called Pons and Fleischmann frauds. It turned out that the Boston Herald had never issued a retraction. And here's why. It's a little hard to hear, but what the voice says is, I'll give you a quote. This is scientific schlock. That voice was none other than Dr. Ronald Parker in his interview with the Boston Herald. This was the first time Dr. Malov heard the tape with his own ears. And that wasn't all. So the question of whether there was they brought out fraud. Fraud. Scientific schlock. These were the very words that Parker had denied ever saying at all. These were the words that caused Malov to stay up all night and draft a press release to condemn the Boston Herald on behalf of Parker. Now Malov was hearing those very words uttered from Parker's mouth. Parker said the word fraud not just once, but five times, and there was more. What are you going to do with this, uh, Nick? You know, this is part of the hearing is that we think it's a scam, right? Was Parker trying to persuade the Boston Herald that Pons and Fleischmann were scammers? Almost immediately, their work was met with contempt, disgust. Even when other scientists were getting positive results, the hot fusioneers wanted nothing of it. It occurred to Dr. Malov that this was the plan all along. They weren't just criticizing the work. This was an orchestrated attempt to condemn Pons and Fleischmann. And it worked. Cold fusion had been declared dead. Pons and Fleischmann, world-renowned in their field, had been reduced to quacks. Maloff couldn't help but think the Boston Herald story was a ploy to plant bad press that would negatively impact Pons and Fleischmann. Even worse, Maloff had unwittingly helped them to conspire to do this. They used me as a pawn in this smear campaign against cold fusion. 
I can't even begin to describe how outraged I am to be part of this public deception. I don't care if Parker denies it. I know what I heard on that tape, and ever since I heard it, I've been torn up inside, absolutely gutted. Dr. Malov had been an MIT man for decades. He'd worn his class ring with pride. But now, after hearing this interview, he faced an impossible choice. Get in line behind the school or fight for what he believed was right. The decision would transform this mild-mannered scientist into a crusading superhero, fighting the evil forces to save the world. The decision would destroy his career. These people had their lives ruined. In some cases, their marriage is ruined, their career is ruined. Strain his family. It created some tension between my parents. And plunge him into an underworld of science and intrigue he'd never imagined before. What he was doing was pushing on an envelope that most people would rather leave alone. It was a battle he'd fight for the rest of his life. Don't become confrontational overnight. It, it builds up. Right up to the day that he was found in that driveway in Connecticut, dead. This was a full court press from the government's point of view to kill this as quickly as possible. They just said if Eugene's dead, I said, what on earth did he die of a heart attack? She said, no, he was killed, he was murdered. The strongest feeling I had was that there's no one left in the world. There is no one left because he is gone. They were going in the wrong direction. They weren't going after the right people. If the scientists had not done this to them, we, we would probably have cold fusion automobiles by now. That's coming up on Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is episode one of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Crime Waves Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov, and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, Sean Cannon, and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhaus. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Canner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. And Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow Crime Waves Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And tell your friends about us.
Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.